0: to Lingthusiasm, a podcast that's enthusiastic about linguistics. I'm Gretchen McCulloch.
1: And I'm Lauren Gorn, and today we're getting enthusiastic about language names. But first, we're doing another Lingthusiasm live show for 2023. The live show will once again be on the Lingthusiasm Patreon Discord, and it will be on the 18th or 19th of February, depending on your time zone.
0: We're really excited to be returning to one of our fan favourite topics and answering your questions about language and gender with a returning special guest, Dr. Kirby Conrad, who you may remember from their very popular episode about the grammar of singular they. So we're bringing them back for more informal discussion, which you can participate in. If you're a Lingthusiasm patron, you can ask questions or share your examples and anecdotes about gender in various languages via Patreon or in the AMA questions channel on Discord, and we might mention some of them in the episode. Or bring your questions and comments along to the live show itself.
1: The Lingthusiasm Discord is available for all patrons at the Lingthusiast tier and above. You can join the Lingthusiasm Patreon by visiting lingthusiasm.com
0: slash Patreon,
1: and that tier also allows you access to our monthly bonus episodes.
0: The Lingthusiasm live show is part of Lingfest, which is a fringe festival-like program of independently organised online linguistic events running in February 2023.
1: If you're listening in the future and want to find out about these events as they're happening, you can follow us on various social media at Lingthusiasm.
0: Our most recent bonus episode for patrons was outtakes and deleted scenes from some of the interviews we've done recently. So if you want to hear more from our guests, Kat Gupta, Lucy Maddox, and Randall Monroe, you can go to patreon.com slash lingthusiasm to get access to that, a whole bunch of other bonus episodes, and our upcoming live show. There's this really fun group activity that you sometimes see in linguistic classes or when linguists are hanging out, mm-hmm. which is collaboratively brainstorming all of the languages that people in the group can think of. Ooh, yeah! So Especially if you don't allow Google or Wikipedia, it's just which languages have you heard of or do you know at least a word or phrase in, and can you put them on a whiteboard or in a notebook?
1: Hmm. I'm already finding this a little bit complicated because I never know what name to give some of the languages that I know or know of or work with.
0: So, what's an example of that?
1: Okay. so I wrote my PhD thesis about some parts of the grammar of a language called Yolmo. Mm-hmm. I worked with a variety that's spoken in an area of Nepal called Lamjung, so that's known as Lamjung Yolmo. Okay. The other variety is just called Yolmo because that's where the Lamjung people migrated from. Ah. Uh. But it's also known, thanks to some kind of savvy branding in the 70s, as Halumbu Sherpa. It's not related to the Sherpa near Everest at all directly, oh. but they wanted to get associated with the kind of trekking tourism, so they took that name as an outside name for a while. Oh. So that's already like three names for what is really one
0: language. And you've also worked on a language called Shuba? Well that's true,
1: but Shuba is actually closely related to these varieties of Yolmo. It's spoken in an area called Ramachup, but it's not called Ramachup Yolmo. Oh, okay. And they've only just returned to asking people to call them Shuba, and before they were called Kagate, which is seen as like a little bit of a kind of unpleasant name. They don't like it anymore, it's like the Nepali word name for them. So again, there's like two or three different possible names for this group of people. Who speak this particular language
0: so these are all names that are used for them in English mm-hmm. do they call themselves these names in the language itself
1: uh, Shuba speakers call themselves Shuba mm-hmm. and they've asked other people to but actually when you talk to people and you're talking about language they just refer to it as dumb which is the word for language and in fact it's the word for language in a lot of different Tibetan varieties and a lot of people will just refer to what they speak as thumb or language so just another name to potentially throw in there.
0: I remember when I was first reading about the different language work that you were doing on your blog, being like, wait, how many languages does this person speak? Because I think the language names were in the process of changing, and so it looked like you'd written something about Kagate and also something about Shuba, but those were actually the same language.
1: Yeah, and it's a constantly evolving situation. and I will always, always defer to the communities I work with as to what they wish to be called, but also keeping track of this history is really interesting as you see the relationship between different groups of people evolve and change. So you know we're kind of at one or two languages, and I've already got you know six or eight names going on here. Uh, our whiteboard is going to get very complicated very quickly.
0: Well, and that's the sort of interesting level of complexity because like how humans sometimes have multiple names on different types of pieces of identification mm-hmm. or at different periods of their lives. Languages can also go through several different names, and it's even more complicated because there are generally multiple members of the community. Sometimes, they'll have different opinions.
1: and Sometimes, those opinions are tied up with really interesting or really complicated or really difficult histories. And We can't just pin a single label to a group of people that speak a particular language.
0: And Another thing that can make language naming complicated is depending on how one tries to draw the boundaries between, okay, these two communities are speaking the same language, they're speaking varieties of one language, or they're speaking languages that we're going to call different, which also factors into a lot of political and community level and linguistic decision-making.
1: And We have a very Western perspective on what we think a group of people or a, a collection of language speakers should be. And there's this really great paper that was recently published about language naming practices in Indigenous Australia from Jill Vaughan, Ruth Singer and Murray Gard, and they looked at how the social attitudes towards language and ownership of language and relationships between peoples creates this really different approach to how to think about names of languages. So in Australia what is really important is the connection between language and a particular land and the geographic relationship that exists there and therefore who has the right to speak a language who has the right to speak a language in a particular place or at a particular time is a very different attitude to what we might have as you know say I'm an English speaker and you can be an English speaker too and we all speak English wherever we go.
0: And both of us live in countries that have this history of colonization where English isn't originally tied to either of the lands that we're occupying.
1: And so the authors in this paper spend a lot of time talking through the example of Binigunwak, which is a language from mm-hmm. the northern part of Australia, which exists as a language name. It's a language name people recognize as a grammar and a dictionary. The name itself is in these languages the word for Person, Bini, and Gunwok speech. So a bit like Yolmo with thumb, kind of similar elements coming into the language name there.
0: This is like the people's language or something like that.
1: Yeah. The people who speak this language kind of thing. People are very happy to use this term and come together as a group to work, say, on a dictionary project or some language materials, but actually there are many, many groups within that cluster of Bini Gunwok that have their own name for their own variety of the language who have names for all the other varieties who don't see themselves as necessarily speaking the same language because they're not necessarily from the same part of the country and this creates this really kind of different relationship to where the language boundary is and the name compared to say English where we kind of see ourselves as all speaking just English
0: so this is sort of language name as a kind of political alliance or federation of languages. I mean, actually now that I'm saying this, I don't know how dissimilar this is to using English to refer to all of the different varieties of English around the world, in the sense that they have certain alliances when it comes to especially written material, but also a lot of local differences on the ground that sometimes get erased by, you know, thinking of them all as as having a common standardized written form.
1: – Yeah, absolutely. I think the situation when we zoom in on any particular context is always more nuanced. and This paper really goes into a lot of the context and the nuance of how we've come to have these language groups and these language names in Australia that can sometimes simplify a really complex social dynamic or a social history.
0: – One of the other things I enjoyed about this paper was from the references portion at the beginning talking about how a language often gains wider public acknowledgement through artifactualization such as the creation of a dictionary or a grammar that makes for sort of a birth certificate of a language, Hmm. as distinct from the language itself. Like, here it's got its driver's license, you know, and we're using this driver's license as a form of kind of neutral, quote-unquote neutral ID to prove that a person exists, when actually, you know, not all humans have equal access to documentation like driver's licenses and birth certificates. And there are other things that a driver's license especially signifies in addition to being an ID marker, like not everyone can drive or is going to be able to learn to drive or is physically able to drive. Mm -hmm. So the idea that dictionaries and grammars get sort of treated as evidence that a language exists, even when they have these very different relationships to different groups of language speakers or language signers, that's a metaphor that sort of carries through.
1: Yeah, again we're trying to use language names as a way to kind of pin things down, but when we actually zoom in, the situation is always a lot more nuanced. And just like we can get distracted sometimes by the fact that people share a name, not all languages that appear to have very similar names are necessarily part of the same family of languages. And uh one that always tricked me up when I started working in Nepal is that we have Nepali Basa mm-hmm. and Nepal Basa
0: as someone who doesn't know anything about Nepal, this really sounds very similar. Yes, Nepali Basa and Nepal Basa.
1: Nepali Basa is the Indo-Aryan language that's the national language of Nepal. Mm-hmm. It's very closely related to Hindi. Nepal Basa is the Nawa languages that are the original languages of the Kathmandu Valley. So that's the capital of Nepal.
0: So they're not part of this broader Indo-European language family that Hindi and Nepali belong to.
1: No, they're actually part of the Tibeto-Burman family. They're part of a completely different family, uh. and they were in the Kathmandu Valley before the Indo-Aryan speakers came in to make it the capital of an even bigger country, which is what we now know as the country of Nepal today.
0: So, Bahasa sort of sounds like another language term, which is Bahasa Indonesia, mm-hmm. like the Indonesian language, or Bahasa Malaya, the Malay language.
1: Yeah, that basa or bahasa is an old Sanskrit word for language. Ah, and so it pops up all over the place, even for languages that aren't related to each other.
0: This is great. So I've just learned a word that means language in a whole bunch of languages that have been influenced by Sanskrit.
1: Yeah, we're definitely collecting words for language in this episode as much as we're collecting language names. Kind of comes part and parcel with the territory.
0: And this does tell us something about the relationships of these languages to each other, which is, I guess. They were all influenced by Sanskrit at some level, mm-hmm. even if you know they have many other differences between them. Indeed, another sort of group of languages with very similar names that have a shared history, even if not necessarily a shared linguistic trajectory, is the group of creole languages. Oh yeah. So when I say creole, what's the first creole language that you think of?
1: Um, creole, spelled K R I O L, which is a language of Australia. Especially up across the Northern Territory and Western Australia, heading towards Binigunwok Country, and it's a creole of the English that came in, but also from across the local languages around there, around the Roper River area. But it's also spread to other parts of Australia as well. So that's the first creole that comes to mind for me. What about for you?
0: I think the first Creole language that I think of is Haitian Creole, mm-hmm. which is also often referred to just as Creole, but in this case spelled K-R-E-Y-O-L with an accent on the O. Mm-hmm. And this is the language of Haiti, which is descended from French, is also sort of spoken in the context of displacement and colonization and having a bunch of people losing some connections with their linguistic roots. But they don't have a common ancestor except insofar as English and French have a common ancestor they just have this common history of being this sort of contact language in terms of what creole refers to.
1: And i find it so fascinating that this word creole has this long history and in certain places has become attached to particular languages that arise in these situations and in other places it refers to maybe the people or the food from the area. And so creole kind of pops up in a lot of places where you've seen french or english colonization.
0: There are also creoles that are tended to other languages. They link to colonization. So there's Portuguese-based Creoles, Dutch-based Creoles, German-based Creoles, Spanish-based Creoles, Arabic, Malay-based Creoles. There's a variety of places you can have a Creole, and many of them, but not all of them, are linked to the transatlantic slave trade and forced displacement of people from locations. So you had a variety of people from different linguistic backgrounds mixing. Not with their consent, and making this sort of combination language where the language they had in common was the colonial language, but also bringing in influences from their various mother tongues.
1: Obviously, the transatlantic slave trade wasn't relevant to Australia, which is not near the Atlantic Ocean, but similar kind of factors around displacement and the bringing in of English as a dominant language of trade and commerce and people's lives. We also have Yumpla in Australia, which is a Creole language of the part of Northern Queensland that heads up into Papua New Guinea.
0: And Tok Pisin is another Creole language, an English derived Creole of Papua New Guinea, which isn't referred to by the name of Creole, like many of them are.
1: But the Tok in both of those is from English talk, so once again another language vibe name as part of a name of a language there.
0: Another language that came about because of contact and colonialization with a bit of a different history is Michif or Métis in Canada, which arose from French fur traders marrying local Cree women. Mm-hmm. and Their kids spoke this language that has a combination of French and Cree using Cree verbs, which are really interesting and complex system that have lots of prefixes and suffixes – Cree's an Algonquian language, and this is characteristic of Algonquian languages – and then French nouns, which are also sort of the more complex bit of French grammar where French nouns have all of this grammatical gender going on. And so, these kids decided to learn like the most featurely rich bits of both of their parents' languages.
1: Amazing that these children made this language out of the complicated verbs and the complicated nouns. But it also has two names, you said, Métis or michif
0: Yeah. So, the name of this people in this language is Métis or michif which comes from a local pronunciation variant of the word Métis. Mm-hmm which is from a French word that means mixed, but it doesn't refer to any type of linguistic mixing where you could have two parents from different language backgrounds. It refers to this particular mixing that happened in this particular historical context.
1: That makes sense that the language name takes on this specific meaning and refers to this specific linguistic context.
0: Yeah. and I think with language names, sometimes something that comes up with a language name is its etymology. You know, This comes from a particular language or this comes from a particular meaning – But also, etymology isn't destiny when it comes to language names.
1: Yeah. I always find it really fun to say, oh, this part of the language name comes from the word for language or the word for talk or the word for people. But a language is so much more than the literal parts of its name.
0: I guess the other point is, etymology is an interesting thing to learn about, but what's important is respecting the wishes of the community that has that particular language. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've been following is names of Bantu languages, because a lot of them seem to come up in pairs. So sometimes you see Swahili in a list, sometimes you see Kiswahili, sometimes you see Zulu, sometimes you see Izizulu, sometimes you see Sutu and Sesutu, or Tswana and Setswana, Congo and Chikongo. And a lot of these language names seem to come in pairs like that where one of them has this prefix that's something like ki or si or chi.
1: And I know that like Setswana is spoken in Botswana and Sesoto is spoken in Lesoto, so they're all connected somehow. And so this marking of something as a language by the use of a prefix is something that happens across these languages and they're all part of the
0: Bantu language family. Right, and Bantu languages are known for having prefixes that mark lots of things and I don't know if it's settled whether in English people are more likely to use the language prefix to refer to the language or not. It seems to sometimes vary per language. Like I mostly see people talking about Kinyarwanda, the language of Rwanda, which includes the prefix but I also often hear people talking about Zulu rather than isizulu without the prefix. So I don't know if there's a consensus across different groups here or if it's something that varies more locally.
1: But I guess it just kind of works how an ish or an ease suffix works in English. So we have ish suffixes like English and Danish and Irish.
0: Yeah, or ease suffixes like Japanese, Cantonese, Portuguese. And These can also get applied to novel contexts to refer to the concept of a language in general, something like Simlish, the language of the Sims. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: or Legalese.
0: Or Journalese.
1: Yeah, I guess there is an older tendency to refer to Nepali as Nepalese as a language, and now you are more likely to see it written as Nepali, so taking their preference for the name as it's pronounced closer to their own use of the name rather than this English suffixized form.
0: Yeah, sometimes the move closer towards how a community identifies themselves happens sort of at the morphological level where the suffix or the prefix changes as well.
1: And this distinction between what a group of people refer to their own language as and how a language is referred to by people outside of the group is often quite different, as we've discussed with a few examples so far.
0: I think the first example that I learned of names for languages being really different in the language versus from other people who speak the language was in German, which in French, which I was learning very early, is allemand, and then in German itself is Deutsch, and all three of these were really different from each other. And in
1: Italian, it's tedesco, and in Polish, it's niemiecku. These are all very different.
0: These are all very different. And so something like English to Anglais and French, I was like, yeah, I sort of see how that happens. Like mm-hmm. you sort of hold it loosely and see how it's similar. But German to Deutsch to Alemann to Nemetsko to Tedesco. These all sound really different from each other.
1: And part of this is that Germany as a country and German as a unified language is a relatively recent construction in kind of Western and European history. So each of these groups were kind of using names for whatever the German closest to them was, and have kept those names as Germany unified.
0: Right. So there's sort of different Germanic tribes or Germanic peoples that were referred to by different names in different areas. Mm-hmm. And the broader name for this phenomenon of the name of a language inside its own group and outside of its own group is a contrast between the endonym, the name inside, and the exonym, the name from outside
1: the nim part there being name and endo and exo being a contrasting pair
0: right so that's nim as in pseudonym or synonym antonym endonym and exonym being themselves antonyms
1: indeed and endo and exo pop up in a whole variety of other places as well we have exoplanets which are planets outside of our solar system
0: so does this mean that planets inside our solar system are technically endoplanets Maybe
1: technically, yeah. and Just like we have exoskeletons like lobsters or super mech warriors.
0: Wait, so we could also have endoskeletons, which is like yeah. what humans have, which is a skeleton inside our body?
1: Yeah, I'm going to start referring to it as my endoskeleton now.
0: I think it's funny because endo and exo are so clearly opposites, but endo is familiar to me less from endoplanets and more from words like endocrine system, which is like your hormones. Oh, I guess that is that endo. So I looked up whether there is also an exocrine system. Oh, is there? Yeah, the endocrine system are like the stuff that gets secreted inside your body mm-hmm. and the exocrine system is all the stuff that you secrete outside your body like sweat and saliva and mucus. I guess
1: also in medicine we have endoscopes, which is when you use a camera in an orifice of your body to look at some internal part of your body.
0: So, this is like when you'd put a camera down your throat to look at your vocal cords?
1: Yeah. So, I guess an exoscope is just any normal camera you take a selfie <laughs> with because it's looking at the outside of your body.
0: <laughs> Great. I'm going to refer to my normal camera as an exoscope now.
1: <laughs> so, an endonym is the name that we have in our own language for our language, and an exonym is the name that we have for a language of some other group of people.
0: So to go back to the German example, Deutsch is the endonym, and then Tedesco and Aleman and German and Nymjetsku are all exonyms for German, coming from the perspective of various other languages.
1: And we've seen some recurring motifs already in terms of endonyms, people using words like talk or language or people for reference to their own language. But there are also lots of different types of exonyms as well
0: and sometimes when a community wants to change the name of their language that sometimes means replacing certain exonyms that other communities are using for their language with something that's closer to the endonym of how they're referring to themselves mm-hmm. which is especially important if this particular community hasn't had a lot of self-determination in the first place i don't think i know any germans who are like yeah no english speakers need to refer to us as deutsch but that's a reflection of german social status which is not the same if you're from a language where there's been this sort of long history of colonization
1: one type of exonym that can sometimes be easy to spot in the wild is when the name for the language as an exonym is very similar to their own endonym. So, For example, we call Italian Italian, and in Italian, it is Italiano.
0: – Right, which is really similar, and sometimes it's just the languages don't have quite the same sounds. Mm-hmm. So The vowels in Italian are going to be different from the vowels in English, and so Italian versus Italiano is produced with slightly different vowels, even though the spelling is quite similar. –
1: so these are cognate because it's the same word just pronounced in each of the respective languages. Sometimes these cognates can be a little bit more hidden.
0: Yeah, like tedesco in Italian is actually from the same origin as the German word deutsch. It also gives us the English word Teutonic. Ah, right. It's just that those words ended up with diverging trajectories in those languages. One place where you have a lot of adaptation for pronunciation differences is if the languages have different modalities. Mm. So If you have a sign language and you want to refer to it in a spoken language, you need a spoken name to refer to it, and vice versa, you need a sign name to refer to a spoken language.
1: And I think this is why a lot of signed languages end up having acronym-type names – so American Sign Language, ASL, British Sign Language, BSL – because there isn't a direct way to take the cognate from the signed language into the spoken
0: language. Actually, that raises a question for me, which is Auslan, which has, I think, a relatively straightforward etymology, Australia and language, but it doesn't have that acronymic thing. I guess it would just be ASL for Australian Sign Language, which would be confusing, but like, do you know how that came about?
1: In the 1970s and 80s, when Trevor Johnson started working on Auslan, it already had a name in Auslan. It has its own sign. Mm-hmm but Trevor Johnson needed a way to refer to it in English as well. and He actually took inspiration from what was happening in America at the time, which is that what we now know as ASL was also being quite commonly referred to as Amoslan. Oh. So, a blend instead of an acronym.
0: Of like American Sign Language. Oh, the S there is for sign. Amoslan. Okay. Yeah. So, the S in Auslan is also for sign rather than Aus as in Australia.
1: It's a bit of both. and I think that's why it's really stood the test of time because it really has a very word feel. Mm-hmm. As you said, it also would have to compete with ASL for recognition in that three-letter acronym approach. and So, Auslan has stood the test of time in a way that Amaslan hasn't.
0: That's interesting. I think that when I think of other linguistic varieties that have acronymic names, I think of sort of accents and dialects and varieties that have been named in the last maybe century or so. Mm -hmm. Acronyming is a very 20th century approach for sure. (laughs) 20th and 21st, I guess. So things like MLE, Multicultural London English, Mm -hmm. or RP, Received Pronunciation, or AAVE, AAE, AAL, which is African American Vernacular English, African American English, African American Language, depending on how you want to name it. These are all very acronymic names for things that have been named comparatively recently, whereas some of the older English varieties, I'm thinking things like Cockney, mm-hmm. which is, you know, associated with a working class in London's East End, or like Scouse in Liverpool, these have like names that aren't acronymic, and these are varieties that have been named for a longer period of time.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how the way that we talk about different languages and different varieties reflects larger trends in approaches to naming things.
0: Another way that language names can come about is by doing a more direct or a partial translation mm-hmm. of the name for the language in the language. So an example of this is Light Walpere, which is a mixed language of Australia that has Indigenous Walpuri language, Creole, and Standard Australian English as its parent languages. And The name Light Walbury, which I'd encountered in a few contexts because it made some news when the linguist named Carmel O'Shaughnessy was documenting it initially, I was interested to read in one of the papers that the name comes from Walbury Ramaku, which literally means in Walbury, Light Walbury. So she, as a linguist, decided to translate part of the name into English while keeping the sort of connection with how people were referring to it in the language. Or possibly speakers were doing that, but it has this connection to how people were talking about it without being a direct reflection of it. So
1: that exonym that is the way that I know the language is a direct translation of their endonym for it. Yeah. Within Walbury. Interesting. I never knew the history of light Walbury.
0: I was sort of wondering why light, and that seems to be why. Sometimes the
1: exonym that we use in one language was borrowed as the exonym from another language. So, we didn't borrow someone's endonym or own way of talking about their language. We borrowed it from maybe their neighbours.
0: Yeah, this is really common in the North American Indigenous context. There are loads and loads of examples. One of them is the name Navajo, which comes from a Tewa word, which is another Indigenous language spoken nearby. Navahu, which combines the word Nava – meaning field and who meaning valley, to mean large field. and It was borrowed from Tewa into Spanish to refer to a particular place, and then later into English for the people in their language. But the name that the people themselves use is Diné, which also means people, with a language known as Diné Bizad, or people's language, or sometimes Nabejo Bizad. But Nabejo is this adaptation of the word Navajo, because there's not actually any V in Diné.
1: Mm. <laughs> Yeah, always a bit of giveaway when the exonym has sounds in it that don't exist in mm-hmm. the language it's referring to.
0: <laughs> really big one. And in this case, you know, field and valley, that's got a relatively neutral valence. You know, it's not the name in their own language, but it's not a particularly bad thing to be people in a field or a valley, but a lot of these names from neighbors are sometimes pretty pejorative.
1: And that is definitely a large theme in exonyms, especially when it's not the group itself that got to determine how they were referred to by outsiders. I mean it's part of why Kagata speakers moved to calling themselves Shuba, even though both of those names refer to their previous occupation as papermakers, which was seen as, you know, Not a very aspirational career in the social hierarchy of Nepal, they've taken a lot more pride in their own word for that name rather than for the Nepali word, which has more immediate negative connotations for Nepali speakers. It took me a long time to make the connection between the Slavic language family and the word that we have from originally Greek and then Latin into modern languages as slave. These two words are actually cognate with each other.
0: Oh, boy. Okay. Is there a sense of which one arose first or
1: I felt like I got conflicting and slightly confusing and lost to history stories depending on the etymological dictionary I looked up, but hmm. definitely seem to be pretty cognate and it says something about the social status of speakers of those languages within definitely the Roman Empire.
0: Yeah, that's for sure a thing. This is also really common when it comes to indigenous languages that a lot of their names are pejoratives. I'm not necessarily sure that I want to repeat a whole bunch of pejoratives of like what the names are mm-hmm. when people are trying to bury them. So I think my go-to example that's comparatively a relatively mild pejorative is the name Maliseet. Uh-huh which is a language spoken in sort of around Eastern Canada and northeastern the United States, also sometimes called Passamaquoddy. And I grew up with that just being the name for the language. But then I learned later that this actually comes from a name by the Mi'kmaq people, who are another indigenous group that's slightly further east in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island and around there, who were encountered by Europeans slightly earlier. And they were asked, you know, who lives over there? And gave the name Malisit, which means they speak slowly. Hmm. Charming. Sort of makes some sense when you think of they speak related languages. Maybe if they're talking to each other, they're trying to come to some understanding and speak slowly to each other. Hmm. But it's not super flattering, and it's a word that people have understandably been moving away from in more recent years. I mean, I only know it as Passamaquoddy. so it gives an indication
1: that you know, the exonym that's now in use is the one that the Passamaquoddy actually prefer.
0: Yeah, there's another exonym which I am unfortunately haven't been able to find a good pronunciation guide of online that begins with a W and translates as meaning people of the Bright River or of the Shining River. So There's still several different endonyms that this is under discussion for, but this is one case of very, very many, some of which are much more insulting. And It gives you a
1: sense of the history of power dynamics in general.
0: There's an interesting case of miscommunication when it comes to the Mi'kmaq language itself, because this was a case where First Nations people and European people were encountering each other mutually for the first time in what's now Eastern Canada. Mm-hmm. So the name Mi'kmaq is an exonym, which literally means in Mi'kmaq my friends and family or my kin friends, sort of implicitly in the answer to who lives around here, well it's like my friends and family live around here. <laughs> um,
1: Wonderfully literal.
0: Yeah, I mean, which fair enough, really. And the endonym is Innu Ilnuisit, the people's language. But since the exonym isn't insulting mm-hmm. and the endonym sounds a lot like a related Indigenous language that's spoken a little bit further north, Innu, at the moment the exonym is still in use in English because it's still a word in the language and it's you know and has this sort of history. And then conversely, the name In mikmaq for French uh-huh. and French people in the French language is Wenjou, or sit, which is they, – they speak French, he or she speaks French, which literally translates to something like, who?
1: Who are they? That is amazing. So, these French people turned up and they're like, who are they?
0: <laughs> Basically, yeah. And so, it's got this sort of interestingly mutual miscommunication, whereas like the Mi'kmaq word for English is English, he speaks English, which is clearly borrowed from French. So you can see the sort of contact via French. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to this sort of paired miscommunication, I find it an interesting story of contact.
1: I always find power dynamics are really interesting for who is centered as the kind of default speaker, or what is centered as the default
0: language. And when it comes to the colonial context, those languages are often named after the country they were originally spoken in. But like, I was at a conference a while back, and I met a linguist from Brazil and said, oh, you speak Portuguese. and He said, well, you know, I like to call it European-Brazilian.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, especially considering there are far more Brazilian speakers of Portuguese than there are those in Europe who speak Portuguese.
0: Yeah. and It sort of raises the question of, could you generalise this in other contexts? Do
1: you think that maybe I should start telling people that in the UK they speak
0: pro-Tipidean-Australian?
1: oh god, it's like
0: Antipodean but Protipodean. Yep. Protipodean Australian. You know what? I'll buy it.
1: I'm going to start trying to uh, get grants to document Protipodean Australian so we can go back and hang out with people in the UK.
0: <laughs> I look forward to seeing the reviewer two comments on that application. Thank you.
1: <laughs> and Maybe at some point in the future, languages like Brazilian Portuguese will find new ways of talking about themselves or asking to be referred to. Jokes aside, language names are in flux and they tell us a lot about history, but they're not set in stone. We can change the way we refer to languages.
0: Right. And linguists have this sort of responsibility if someone's in charge of making the types of documentation that make a language visible to bureaucratic infrastructure to be very thoughtful and talking with multiple people about how that language name is decided.
1: And I think we all have a responsibility to keep in mind that language names can change and can have complicated histories. And The thing we can do is always respect the choices of the people who speak those languages when it comes to the names they're given. For more Lingthusiasm and links to all the things mentioned in this episode, go to lingthusiasm.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can follow at Lingthusiasm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can get IPA scarves, not judging your grammar stickers, and aesthetic IPA posters and other Lingthusiasm merch at lingthusiasm.com slash merch. I tweet and blog as Superlinguo.
0: I can be found as at Gretchen A. McSee on Twitter, my blog is allthingslinguistic.com, and my book about internet language is called Because Internet. Have you listened to all the Lingthusiasm episodes and you wish there were more? You can get access to an extra Lingthusiasm episode to listen to every month, plus our entire archive of bonus episodes to listen to right now, at patreon.com slash lingthusiasm, or follow the links from our website. Have you gotten really into linguistics and you wish you had more people to talk with about it? Patrons can also get access to our Discord chat room to talk with other linguistics fans. Plus, all patrons help keep the show ad-free. Recent bonus topics include outtakes from our interviews with Randall Monroe, Kat Gupta, and Lucy Maddox, an episode about stylized ye oldie timey English, and children learning languages. Plus, on February 18th or 19th, 2023, depending on your time zone, you can join us for a patron-exclusive live show featuring special guest Dr. Kirby Conrad to talk about language and gender. Can't afford to pledge? That's okay, too. We also really appreciate if you can recommend Lingthusiasm to anyone in your life who's curious about language.
1: Enthusiasm is created and produced by Gretchen McCulloch and Lauren Gorn. Our senior producer is Claire Gorn. Our editorial producer is Sarah Doppiorella, And our production assistant is Martha Tsutsui-Billens. Our music is Ancient City by The Triangles.
0: Stay Lingthusiastic!